the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We were supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. Three hundred years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombie Land. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome. The desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AV Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal now and in this red pill cafeteria. Get your coconuts out as Ralph Ellis gallops to the virtual Alexandria to make the connection between two historic savior figures. The victors write history, and not only did they place Jesus and Mary Magdalene in the wrong timeline, but they hid his story in layers of myth and legend. What is the actual connection of King Arthur and King Jesus? Find out more as we journey to finding the real Holy Grail, all based on Ralph's book, The Grail Cipher, The Secrets of Arthurian History Revealed and his other research. As a further honor, Robert M. Price will join us. And if you always want to have the true history behind history, keep in mind that you can download or stream at your convenience Astronosis 2 Meet the Archons. Enjoy more than 12 hours of mind-blowing insights from renowned scholars and visionaries, covering everything from the historical origins of the Archons to psychological interpretations and rituals for individual liberation. The feedback has been phenomenal. The price is too good to be of this world, and sales do help fund the next conference, which we're already planning. Don't forget as well, if you join the Virtual Alexandria Academy, Meet the Archons is added at no extra cost. The Demiurge shudders and Sophia laughs. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. Hail to the king, baby. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor, just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up, will you? Shut up! Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help, help! I'm being repressed! Bloody 
peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Byte. Welcome to AB Live. Little promo from the Virtual Alexandria Academy, which you can join. And now, of course, you do get the Meet the Archons replay for free when you join. So excellent Gnosis, and we will have excellent Gnosis today, as we always do. Great to see you. My name is Miguel Connor. I am still your pompadus of Gnosis, that madman across the waters of creation. And you are amazing. You are the final authority. And I'm glad you are here to finally find out who you really are and what reality is about. So very excited today to talk once again to two individuals who I truly admire and certainly make me laugh, which is half the battle. First, we've got uh, Utha, Ralph Ellis. Ralph, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Good to be back with you again, Miguel, and nice to see the uh, the crowd back again, Moodog and Robert. Hi, Robert. We haven't seen each other for a while. Yeah, hope you're doing well. Yeah, yes, it's very nice to have you, Bob. As always, good to see the Bible geek here, and hope you're doing well too, Bob. <laughs> oh, you bet. And with us too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing in your Camelot? Oh, I'm shivering with anticipation to find out what the ground speed of an African swallow is. <laughs> I was going to ask everybody to bring their coconuts and we could all sort of ride through the interview. But uh, another time, another time. Well, awesome. Well, as always, uh, those of you in the chat, uh, behave well. Don't turn the chat into the chatico. If you have any questions or issues, Please put them in a super chat so we can get to you as soon as possible. Uh, not much on the house uh, housekeeping side. On Monday, it's 9-11, and I thought, why not do a conspiracy theory show? Because it is 9-11, and we've never done a 9-11 show. So we're going to do one. It will be more on transhumanism and all uh, synchromysticism and all that stuff. So that will be our next show. Replay will be out in a couple of days. Next week, we've got also some great shows, uh, including Mitch Horowitz will join us to discuss his new book on the history of occultism. So brace yourself on this September with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Before we get started, Bob, I actually had a question for you, uh, a little side question. I don't know if you've heard either, Ralph, but there's this new sayings of Jesus that have come out, and it's gotten academia excited, gotten me excited. I saw Candida Moss putting out content on this and Dan McClellan, and I tried looking for it, but of course it's behind some very expensive Brill paywall, so I can't <laughs> get to it. Have you heard of these sayings? This new batch of uh, only as much as you have. I have the same problem trying to penetrate the uh, the, the barrier. There, like I felt like Sophia trying to uh, get and make her way into the pleroma. Tough luck, you know the bounce the kicking out. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, that's a pity. Yeah, yeah. It's expensive to do these things. Is this how it works? You first have it behind like academia and then they'll release something or uh, what's the process? Well, of course, that's, you know, what happened with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? It, uh, they've discovered them in 1947, I think it was. And it was decades and decades before they came out because the guys sitting on them, the, the pre-chosen team, wanted to have said the last word on it before anybody else got to say their first word. Uh, it was outrageous, and they still didn't give them up. It was up to uh, Robert Eisenman and a couple of others to to uh, sneak them out to the public, and uh, and thank God they did. Uh, so uh, this is uh, let's hope this doesn't take so long. It's incredible, though. I do hear that some scholars question the authenticity of uh, this text because of the word Oldsmobile appearing in it. Uh, <laughs> This is not the father's Oldsmobile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, what a mess. Yeah, I'm starting to think these people should work for Washington. They're yeah, more maybe they do. 
Yeah, because uh, even with the Nag Hammadi library, it wasn't as smooth. We didn't get the trans English translation till 79, and it was a mess. He had Gilles Gispel stealing one to give to Carl Jung, and hmm. yeah, these things are, God, what a mess. It's a pity, because it's exciting when you hear these things, right? Mm-hmm. I wrote a whole pity. book. I wrote a book about novels that deal with this when I realized there were over 40 of them uh, published where somebody discovers uh, a new gospel, usually that's what it is, or in some cases, the, the bones of Jesus or both. It was called Secret Scrolls, Revelations from the Lost Gospel Novels. And it was quite interesting comparing them. And because usually the, the controversial element in the novel that causes all the intrigue is, will this blow the lid off Christianity? And, and it was interesting to see what each author thought would do that. Uh, and I thought all the way through, I read every one of these and wrote this book, and it was a lot of fun. I loved them. Uh, but it, it's like, uh, you know, this has already happened. The Gospel of Thomas and stuff like that, that's not blowing the lid off uh, uh, Christianity. And if you actually discovered the the uh, funeral director's bill for for uh, Jesus or something like that, uh, and uh, you know what difference would it make? Who would even know it? I mean, even if they tried to publicize it, people would just say, uh, "Oh yeah, whatever." Those guys will come up with anything. In fact, I had a pastor decades ago that I, I can't believe this, but he said if they were to discover the bones of Jesus uh, to to debunk the resurrection, would you still believe in it? You should. I thought, oh my God, don't <laughs> confuse me with the facts. Oh yeah, it's like the Grand Inquisitor. Even if Jesus himself came back and said, you guys got it all wrong, nobody's going to mm. change. It's just mm. the way, yeah, humans are going to believe what they're going to believe and our dear leaders are going to screw things up as mm. they do. Yeah, there's no It'll blow the Vatican away and all those, you know, famous things we've heard. Mm. What about you, Ralph? Have you heard of this? Or are you just smirking as always about the, the course of human uh, human intellect? <laughs> are you frozen, Ralph? Or are you just dedicated? Is Ralph frozen? I think the deep state got him. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, he's not moving. I think it's, his network is... Uh... Maybe he's doing a Mitch McConnell impression. <laughs> that might be it. Yeah, you better get that Washington D.C. doctor to uh, to tell you. All right, I'm sure Ralph will 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 jump in and uh, we'll get started. I guess the other question in the meantime, and I kind of had this towards the end. Of course, Bob and Vance, please uh, let me know, and we'll ask Ralph too. But what is your favorite King Arthur movie? I'll say mine is always going to be John Borman's Excalibur, although Richard Harris and Camelot always has a place in my heart. What about you, Bob? Well, I've never seen Camelot, believe it or not, but I've seen Excalibur zillions of times, and uh, it's been uh, at the top or near the top of my uh, list of movies for, or for all this time. And to me, like when new King Arthur movies come out, I don't care to see them uh, because uh, it, it, it's like um, I once saw Secretariat win uh, that horse race by 32 lengths or something like that. I couldn't care less about watching a horse race anymore. Why bother once you've seen this? Uh, nobody will ever come near it. And I feel exactly that way about Excalibur. Just everything about it is so great. The rest of it, I don't care what they do. Uh, it just uh, it couldn't possibly measure up. And uh, so I, I just loved it. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we could talk for <laughs> hours, but I'm just thinking of how you know, always beautiful Helen Mirren was, and mm. it had all, you know, Patrick Stewart was in it. It had all mm. these rising Hollywood actors and great performance. What about you, Vince? Oh, well, this may be saying a lot about me, but Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. Sublime. 
And then uh, I, this isn't a, a King Arthur movie per se, but I loved Merlin with Sam Neill. I, I really, I really love that um, that movie. I think oh, that's I never the saw name that. of it. Yeah, the, the one with Sam Neill in it. I've heard it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. All right. Are you back with us, Ralph? What happened? I am. I Vatican. suddenly dropped off just for a while there, but I'm Vatican back with you. decided to take you out. <laughs> they did, yeah. <laughs> well, while you were out, we're just, uh, it was a question I was going to ask at the end, but I thought I'd do it now. Uh, do you have any favorite King Arthur movies? All of us pretty much agree. Monty Python and John Borman's Excalibur. <laughs> um Having written this book, I'm a little bit um, peeved with some of the portrayals we get of the King Arthur. They are so predictable. They are so sort of um, medieval uh, that they don't represent any sort of Arthur whatsoever, whether, you know, the Dark Age Arthur or, you know, anything else. So, yeah, a little bit disappointed. So it'll have to be Monty Python is the closest you'll get because I think they were closest on the trail, as it were, of, of the real Arthur. Because, uh, yeah, my books go down, goes down a real strange rabbit hole, this one. I mean, this, um, th this book I wrote, The Grail, Cy the Grail Cipher, is uh, so unlikely. Uh, that a lot of people can't even believe it, that so much about Arthurian legend could possibly be wrong um, and need reinterpreting. Um, so it's a real strange one, this, that it, it, it gathers enemies from Arthurian purists, of course, because uh, they don't like the uh, trajectory that it disappears in. And it, it gains enemies from Christians, of course, because they don't like the uh, implications of it either. So it's a, a real shocker, this one, but uh, it makes a lot of sense. Good deal. Yeah, I would say, uh, which one did I watch? Guy Ritchie's King Arthur was dreadful, uh, terrible. <laughs> so, but... Uh, I guess we've lost it. So tell us the thesis of your book, if you want to start there. Yeah, sure. And do interrupt, uh, because I, I tend to rabbit on about this. <laughs> if you want any questions, just sure. break in, raise a hand or something. Um, yeah, the, the problem with King Arthur was like when I was writing my books about, <clears throat> you know, first century Christian history, I kept coming across some little snippets that sort of looked Arthurian. Mm, sort of because one of the primary heroes of, of Arthurian legend is Joseph of Arimathea. Now, there's a strange oddity for a starters, because, of course, we're going back to first century Judea. Uh, and, yeah, so that's a bit strange. But anyway, so that sort of alerted my um, my senses to something being wrong. Uh, and so I started to look into it. This was about six years ago, seven years ago. I forget when it was now. I, I took um, two years off. I gave up work and I went to Spain for two years to write this book, which was quite pleasant. Um, and the first thing you notice is that there is no King Arthur, not before the Middle Ages anyway. And that's strange. And in a way, this is very similar to the gospel story uh, with all of these characters missing from the historical record. And we have the same with Arthur. He goes missing. So you start looking back at sort of Gildas, who's, you know, fifth or sixth century. He's there, you know, during the Dark Ages when Arthur was supposed to be ruling. And he doesn't mention King Arthur whatsoever. There is no King Arthur. Uh, and then you get to the Venerable Bede. He's eighth century and there's no mention of King Arthur there either. Then we get to Nennius, uh, History of the Britons, that's ninth century. And he mentions a warrior called Arthur. I think he calls him a, a Dux Bellorum, a, uh, a warlord. Uh, but there's, there's, there's no Arthurian story. There's no royal court, no Camelot, no table, no knights, no Guinevere. None, none of the things that we understand are to do with uh, Arthurian legend. And then we get to William of Malmesbury and Henry of Huntington, uh, who writes some fairly good history of England. This is 12th century, uh, 1125, something like that, 1130. And again, with there is no King Arthur. 
Um, and then we finally get to Walter of Oxford and Geoffrey of Monmouth, the famous ones, uh, which is 1135. So we're talking like 600 years after King Arthur was supposed to have existed. And suddenly we get the whole story. And it just pops out of nowhere, you know. Uh, the complete story with everything there, except for Lancelot, I think, is not there. And the round table is not there. That's sort of invented later. But apart from that, the entire Arthurian story just drops out of nowhere in 1135. Mm-hmm. Interesting date that. We'll come back to why that should be um, pertinent. But then we get to uh, William of Newburgh, who's who's not much later, 1150, 1160. Um, and he obviously didn't get the memo <laughs> because William of Newburgh ridicules the story of King Arthur. And I, I might as well give a quote here because it's not very long. He says, um, only a person ignorant of ancient history can for a moment doubt how impertinently and impudently Monmouth falsifies the history uh, of King Arthur in every respect. Whatever Geoffrey has written is a complete fiction invented either uh, by himself or by others and promulgated either through an unchecked propensity to falsehood or a desire to please the Britons. He really doesn't like it, this guy. Uh, and he goes on. And this is a real fair point in this one. For how would the elder historians who were ever anxious to omit nothing remarkable and even recorded trivial circumstances pass by unnoticed so incomparable a man and such surpassing deeds as King Arthur? How could they, I repeat, by their silence, suppress King Arthur, a British monarch who was superior to Alexander the Great? Fair comment, I would say. So, yes, certainly this guy didn't get the memo. This is William of Newburgh from about 1150 AD, and he knows nothing about King Arthur. And that's a bit of a red flag here because this, this, you know, king from the Dark Ages is only known by a select group of people. Mm-hmm. And why would that be? Um, well, uh, I don't really want to jump ahead too much, but the, the date is important here because um, the date is 1135. That's 35 years after the First Crusade. And where did the First Crusade go to? The First Crusade went out in uh, 1096, I think, uh, out to the east to save Christianity from uh, Muslim oppression. And the first place they went to, this is under Count Baldwin of Boulogne, who was the leader of the First Crusade. They didn't go to Jerusalem. They went to Edessa. And anyone who's watched my previous videos, of course, will know my theory about Jesus coming from Edessa. The first crusade went to liberate Edessa, not Jerusalem. So it liberated Edessa in 1098. uh, And I think there was a good reason for going there, because I think they understood that Edessa was central to the sort of gospel story. So if you wanted anything interesting any records any artifacts any um uh anything left over from that era you're going to find it in Edessa rather than Jerusalem and that's where they went to and that that was how i started this this story that um the story of king arthur might be radically displaced in both chronology and its uh, location. But I've seen this before because I've already written about this with the Jesus story, that it was displaced chronologically by 40 years as a way of hiding the gospel story. I've already written about this, about uh, King Solomon and King David, that they were displaced from, so the chronology is correct, but they were displaced from their kingdom. So the kingdom was not uh, Zion, Jerusalem, it was Zoan, Tanis. And if you, and it's only down the road, you know, it's in the Nile Delta. If you start looking in Tanis uh, for the kingdom of uh, Solomon David, you can find the whole of the United Monarchy there. 
So I've already seen this in in previous books where the the location or the era of these events have been changed deliberately to hide a story. And I think that's what's going on here because a funny thing happened on the way to um, Arthurian legend. If you read some of the early uh, manuscripts, so not the popular ones by Geoffrey of Monmouth, but if you read something like High History or the History of the Holy Grail from the Vulgate Cycle, it says something rather heretical. It says that the original author of Arthurian legend was Josephus Flavius. Mm. And that's a problem. Yeah. That's a real Slightly. shocker, that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you get people like um, uh, Nietzsche. He's um, early 20th century from America. He's um, Arthurian. He's known as the, the father of Arthurian research, basically. And he says, the role of Josephus is of greater importance in our work. He's talking here about the Vulgate cycle of Arthurian legend. Um, the role of Josephus is greater of greater importance in our work than that of Joseph. It is Josephus to whom we owe the tale. He is known as the good clerk and the good hermit. Twice the text calls him Joseph, and twice he is called Josephus. Nevertheless, it is now generally supposed that the confusion between these Josephs, Joseph of Arimathea and Josephus Flavius, the Jewish historian, gave rise to the legend of Joseph and his son Josephus. Because in Arthurian legend, we have um, the son of Joseph of Arimathea is called Josephus, who is the good scribe, who was a witness to scripture. Who was the good scribe who was a witness to scripture who was known as Josephus? Um, and Brugger goes even further. Again, Brugger is early 20th century, I think, Arthurian uh, researcher. Um, and Brugger says, because even if Josephus Flavius was very well known as a historian and even much respected and held as a Christian historian, it remains striking that he could record events from British history that occurred many centuries after his death. I think these oddities are only the result of a confusion. Right. So there is a big problem at the center of Arthurian legend that several of these manuscripts say that it was written by Josephus Flavius. And we need an explanation for that. And the only explanation that uh, Nietzsche and Brugger could come up with was there was an error here. There has been a confusion. But what if there wasn't a confusion? What if this was deliberate? Um, again, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we might as well go there since we're here. The other alternative idea is that this is actually a first century Middle Eastern story, a gospel story that has been readapted um, into British Dark Ages in order to hide what it was saying. Um, and the reason for doing so is because what it was saying was heretical. What they might have found in Edessa during the First Crusade, remember the First Crusade went to Edessa, what they might have found was the secular history of Jesus. What they might have found is is essentially my book, uh, Jesus King of Edessa, or some such uh, history. I mean, one of the, the ones they might have found is something like um, History of the Kings of Israel by Justus of Tiberius, which was an alternative account of not only the history of the Israelites, but the history of the Jewish revolt. Now, we know about this book because Josephus Flavius hates it, and he fulminates against Justus of Tiberius, saying that his book is a complete tissue of lies, you know. Um, <laughs> What he means, of course, is a book that disagrees with what he was saying himself. Um, but, of course, we don't have it. It's gone. 
I, I imagine Josephus, who who became this sort of de facto king of Israel um, after the Jewish revolt, because he was uh, he had the the ear of the emperor, so whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. Uh, I would imagine if Josephus Flavius found this book, he would have destroyed it, and that's probably what happened to it. So we don't have books of that nature. So we don't know the alternative history that they might have said. But if there was a secular history of the Gospels, that would be highly heretical in the age this was being written, because these, these texts are being written in the Middle Ages, 1135 AD, by Geoffrey of Monmouth. And I think that's what they were covering up. So instead of... Because if you wrote the secular history of Jesus, you would be burnt at the stake, basically, because the secular history disagrees somewhat with the uh, classical gospel story, you know, that Jesus was a real man, that he was a warrior, that he was a real king, he was a king of Edessa, et cetera, et cetera, everything I've been talking about. That story would be hugely heretical, and you would not be able to mention that story at all, but you're quite happy because you will be slow roasted like Jacques de Molay was, you know, the, <laughs> <Knights Templar. laughs> the leader of the Knights Templar yeah, in 13. Well, no, it wasn't 1307. Uh, it was after 1307. He was in prison for a while. But anyway, he got slow roasted over hot coals because of some secrets that the Templars held. What secret did they hold? I think it was this secret. They couldn't mention this secret in the open, um, so they had to have it hidden behind uh, initiation within a secret society, which is essentially uh, what the uh, Knights Templar were. But you could also mention it in polite society if you said it was a story about King Arthur, some sort of strange um british king that from the dark ages that nobody really knows about and it's the dark ages because most of the records were lost in the dark ages so you don't know about it but anyway there was this king arthur chap you know running around in the dark ages yeah i mean it was a time when you were getting your government from watery tarts so you can dismiss (laughs) them right (laughs) yes go ahead ralph so, yeah, you can talk about this story and you can relate it. You can write it down. You can sell books about it. If you just say it's a story about Arthur of the Britons and just don't mention anything about Jesus <laughs> of, of Judea or, or of Jesus of Odessa. That, I think, is what this story was all about, because um, there is an oddity. Well, there are many. <laughs> There are many oddities in this game um, right. about um, – I'm just looking for some pictures here. Uh, there are many oddities. I'm going to do a quick uh, screen before, share. Before we do that, Ralph, uh, yep. Bob, do you have a comment or you want to cross-examine <laughs> Ralph or what do you think? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc well, for one thing, I think it's highly significant that uh, uh, the same actor portrayed uh, Brian of Nazareth and uh, King Arthur in the two movies. So that that may be a thing. <laughs> that's that. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just kidding. Uh, conspiracies. But, yeah, that's right. Uh, but the uh, the serious uh, point is that 
it seems to me what you're suggesting is uh, somewhat like the Highland, uh, this uh, uh, German a retelling of the gospel story in which Jesus and his disciples are knights and warriors. And presumably that's an allegory, uh, the, the crusade against evil and so on. But it's not that far removed. If you didn't have the name Jesus on it uh, and put somebody else's name on it, uh, you'd have the the same thing here. Uh, and so it's it's like it's not quite the same thing, but it's by the principle of analogy, it, it certainly lends even more strength to what you're saying. Uh, it's not like well, no, something it's... like this didn't ever happen otherwise. It's exactly what Arthurian legend says, because Arthurian legend says that the Jesus and the disciples of the round last supper table are exactly the same as Arthur and the knights of the Arthurian round table. Mm. It says that the round table was a copy of the last supper table. So there were three tables that were made. The last supper table was a round table, not a, not a rectangular one. And the knights were armed because that's what it says in the Gospels. I can't remember the verse now. But anyway, Jesus sent out his disciples to go and buy swords. Um, so the disciples were all armed. And on, on the basis of that, the next round table was the round table of um, Joseph of Arimathea, who made his own round table and he had his own 12 knights um, or disciples. And then the third one was the table of King Arthur. And he now had a table um, of 12 knights who were much more knightly, of course, and less disciple. Um, and so they and all of those tables were supposed to be copies of each other. But of course, looking deeper into this, all of those tables were copies of the Zodiac. Because the Zodiac is, is the king in the center, the Helios character, surrounded by his 12 constellation knights. And, of course, the, the Nazarene Jews uh, of the first century venerated the, no, the, the, the Zodiac. We have the, the great Zodiac at Hamat Tavera on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And strangely enough, that Zodiac was owned by Jesus, mm. Jesus of Gamala, Sophias. And Jesus of Gamala Sophias was known as a leader of 600 rebel fishermen. Now, who was the leader of rebel fishermen in the first century? Now, if you read a classical history of that zodiac, it'll say it's third century. Some say fourth century. But the uh, processional plan of it with um, Helios the head of Helios going between the constellations of uh, Aries and Pisces marks out the first century. So processionally, the date for that zodiac is the first century. But more than that, if you read Josephus, there is a passage in Josephus where he himself, Josephus Flavius, who was the army commander in command of Galilee, was sent to Tiberius uh, to destroy the heretical images of animals that lay in a palace uh, just to the south of Tiberias, four furlongs south of Tiberias. And of course, if you go four furlongs south of the south gate of Tiberias, you come to Hamat Tavira, which does indeed have heretical uh, images of animals on it. So I'm pretty sure that there was, if not this zodiac, an earlier zodiac, uh, on that place. Uh, but of course, to protect that zodiac, Jesus of Gamala Sophias burnt down the palace so that Josephus couldn't see it because the penalty for having these heretical animals was probably death, or, you know, stoning uh, to death. And so he burnt the palace down so nobody could find the zodiac, which is why I think it could well be the same zodiac that has been sitting there and they built a new synagogue on top of it uh in later eras um so yeah the the round table is a very ancient symbolism that comes out of astrology and was adopted by the jesus movement the uh, church of jesus and james and then was adopted by joseph of arimathea and then was given to the arthurian character 
as the round table. It's the same symbolism. Mm. So there is a direct transmission here all the way through from the Gospels into Arthurian legend. So Leonardo da Vinci got it wrong, right? He should have done a round yeah. table. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it should have been a round table. And not only round, because we have the Winchester round table, which is a very old one in Winchester uh, in the south of England. Uh, that dates from Edward I, which I think is uh, 12th century. So it's pretty old. Um, and it's still sitting there on the wall. It's no longer a table. They've put it up as a, like a dartboard on the wall. Um, and that has the king on the perimeter of the um, round table. But that's not how it would have been. As a zodiac, the king would actually sit in the center. So the table would be hollow, mm. and the king would sit in the center, surrounded by his 12 knightly constellations or disciple constellations. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. To some people, this sounds wacky because they cannot uh, appreciate astrology. I mean, I have no opinion about it one way or the other, but that's a crucial error. It's like numerology. We may not take it seriously, but the ancients sure did. And you have to factor that in. Yeah. 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 And, and we know. Because the stars. Yeah, it was so important. So important. We, we we know that Jesus was following that because he was styled as a um, lamb of God who became a fisher of men, which mm. is tracking the processional zodiac from the great month of Aries into the great month of Pisces. Mm. And of course, Arthurian legend does exactly the same. Um, that the birth scene of uh, King Arthur is that he was um, uh, there was a comet what does it say it says uh, this is from geoffrey of monmouth he says there appeared a star of marvelous size and brightness stretching forth one ray uh, whereupon was a ball of fire spreading forth in the likeness of a dragon that's important we'll come to that and from the mouth of the dragon issued forth two rays reaching beyond the regions of gaul and towards the irish sea uh, the ray towards Gaul portended that a son will be born, and the other ray signified a daughter. So we have this symbol in the sky, which is some sort of comet with two rays. And um, if we have a quick look at um, the constellation of Pisces, of course, that is, I'm just trying to see if I've got it here. Yes, I've got here. Perhaps if I can do a quick screen share. Sure, sure. So I'll share a screen, and I want that one. No, I want a window. I want that one. <laughs> yeah, do the window. There you go. Yeah, I'll do a window. All right, I see it there, and now I will. There we go. Great. Okay, so... Uh, Pisces is a, you might call it a comet with two rays. It's pictured as two rays, uh, each ending with a fish. And of course, the dragon in Aramaic, the Dagon in Aramaic is a fish. We'll come to that in a minute because that, that is Arthurian. So when, when it's talking about this um, strange apparition in the sky, this comet with two rays, one ending in uh, King Arthur and the other ending in Queen Guinevere, that I think it's talking about the constellation of Pisces. And, of course, the great month of Pisces started um, in AD 10, right at the beginning of the first century. Um, now, people might say, oh, this is recent. You know, this might be Vic Victorian or something, you know. No, this this portrayal goes all the way back into Egypt. So if we look at this, which is the zodiac of Dendera in Egypt, this goes back to 3rd, 4th century BC. Um, this is Pisces. Uh, this sort of slightly upside down <laughs> from the previous one, but never mind, I'm sure you can see that. Uh, or, or can I rotate it? Mm, yeah okay so this is pisces i don't know if you can see my cursor and you can see the two rays 
ending in two fish, exactly the same. And, you know, this is from the centuries BC in Egypt, so that the symbolism of Pisces has not changed. But do note that beside each fish, there is a circle. One, this circle here on the top is Isis, and this circle on the bottom is Horus. So the Arthurian comet with two rays ended with Arthur and Guinevere, and this comet, this Pisces, ends in Horus and Isis. It's the same story. Um, and and the, birth mo the, the birth scene for King Arthur, uh, where uh, his, his mother was tricked into sleeping with someone else. It's a nice little complicated story. Um, but that is the conception and birth of Hercules. It's exactly the same as the conception of Hercules. So you can see where they're digging into history for these motifs that have been used uh, within Arthurian legend. Um, and, and since we're here, I do have somewhere. Here we go. Here's the, here's the Zodiac at Winchester. Zodiac. <laughs> this is the round table at, at Winchester. So this is the Arthurian. So this is like 800 years old. And it's huge. Uh, I don't know how big it is. It must be about six meters across, maybe five meters across. Anyway, it's huge, um, made of oak. And they've got 24 around this round table instead of 12. And they've put the king, as I say, in the top of it. Um, and they've the king here is Henry VIII. So this was redrawn uh, some 500 years ago. And they put Henry VIII on it. But in reality, it should be uh, hollow and the king should sit in the center, a little bit like this Arthurian table. So there should be a hole mm. in the center and the king should sit in the center because essentially it is the zodiac. Mm. And this is the uh, zodiac on the Sea of Galilee. This is the Hamat Tavera zodiac. Uh, the one that was owned by Jesus. Um, so this is a Nazarene Jewish. This is in a synagogue, of course. This is a Jewish uh, um, zodiac. So the primary symbol of early Judaism, because there's, I think there's seven of these have been discovered in early synagogues. So there were loads and loads of these synagogues with um, uh, different zodiacs in. Here's the one at Sephoris. Again, this is a Jewish zodiac. Very fine one, this one at Sephoris. Um, this is the Hamat Tavera one on the Sea of Galilee. And as you can see, the king sits in the center because he is Helios. Um, and that's heretical for a start. <laughs> this is a um, Jewish synagogue, and it's got heretical images of animals in the zodiac. And the central character is the Greek Helios. <laughs> so these Nazarene Jews were highly uh, irregular, you might say. They were not classical Orthodox Jews. Um, and you can see the head of Helios is pointing between Aries and Pisces. Now, in procession, that's a particular date. And that date is AD 10. That's when Aries changed to Pisces. That's why Jesus was born as a lamb but became a fisher of men. Um and they had some great technology as well. This is a blow-up of this. And you can see that Helios is holding a blue-green spherical earth in his gravitational grasp. And you can see lines of latitude and longitude on it that are curved, which would only happen if this was spherical. So whoever made this... Um, Zodiac understood the heliocentric model of the uh, solar system mm. because Helios is holding the Earth in his gravitational grasp. They understood the orbital mechanics of the solar system, and this is this is first century. This is long before Cop Copernicus. No. Um, this is the level of technology and uh, and science and astronomy that they understood in this era. Um, so you can see why people would maybe have wanted to join this 
particular sect. So, um, yes, I'll do a quick stop share there. So, yeah, that's my, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, go ahead. But first, uh, there was a comment in the chat. Speaking of conspiracies, I'll put it up here. Uh, that's not it. Uh, let's, here's the one. You've never seen King Arthur and Robert Price in the same room. Would you like to explain <laughs> that, Bob? You have something to confess to us? Actually, I'm more like Mordred, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're on the cool side with Jim Morrison. You, you could be Merlin with that beard. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but you were going to say something, Bob? <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is sort of out of left field, but uh, in in a strange source, uh, it, the uh, the uh, New Age uh, Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. Uh, it, it's uh, the whole thing's it's remarkable and and weird. It's like this channeled thing, uh, but the at the crucifixion account. The author has Jesus on the cross with the darkness over the land, uh, and he's saying, uh, uh, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabatani, etc. And one of the people at the cross says, uh, hold on, he's calling for Helios, uh, which would look pretty much the same in Greek. And what is he, what's going on? The sun has disappeared. And so he's calling for the, I mean, this is the, this guy's reading of it. And it's always struck me. I don't know what to do with it, but yeah, he's, what if he's calling for the sun? And if, if these are Jewish zodiacs, which give prominence to the sun god Helios, and, and there were Jews who were into this, is it possible this leaks into the gospel narrative somehow? I would imagine that's highly possible, actually. I mean, that's always been very enig enigmatic, that, that cry at the end. It was obviously important because it was included in, in such a fashion. Mm. I've tried to decipher it, but uh, I would say unsuccessfully. Uh, but that sounds like a, a, a very reasonable argument, actually, you know, because he was taken down just before sundown, wasn't he? Before mm. Before darkness. So mm. yeah, I might uh, I might have a look at that. <laughs> Good. Oh boy, <laughs> a chariot smiling down upon us, Bob. Amen. We're, we're hitting all the right <laughs> astrological notes. Well, uh, yeah, there's. Uh, it's funny in the chat, people are definitely quoting uh, not just uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but now they've moved on to Life of Brian, so they're having fun. I had forgotten <laughs> that uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was actually bankrolled. By Pink Floyd, I think so too. And yeah. I think George Harrison. I know George Harrison did Time Bandits and Life of Brian, but yeah, they, they got all these rock stars to bankroll their produce their movies. It was awesome. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ralph. Okay. Oh no, I was just going to say, yeah, that was um, very serendipitous. I think um, th that came about by accident. It, it wasn't that that was by design at all. They just happened to be talking to someone, and that person talked to someone else, and then said that this uh, rock star who who was it again? It was um, well, George Harrison was a producer. Pink Floyd that's right. did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the it was George Grail. Harrison, and and put them together and, and made this film when nobody else would touch it with a barge pole. This was yeah. life of Brian. I think he, he put the money up for. Um, mm -hmm. And so very speculatively, I, I, I don't know his religious leanings, George Harrison, but um, Hindu. he obviously put up. Yoga, Hindu? Yeah. Uh, yoga and some other. Uh, of course. Of course. That's what they were doing at that time. Yes. But he put up the money and probably made a mint out of it. But it was very speculative at the time and uh, ended up with one of the most famous films ever made. So, yeah, good on him. Yeah, yeah. That, George. A couple of the Pythons were on a panel show with, uh, I think it was, um, oh, man, what's his name? Well, with some bishop... And uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a late in life convert, and they just thought this was terrible and blasphemous. And I thought, how 
dim-witted <laughs> can you be? They, they, uh, they, in interviews, they said that we thought about satirizing Jesus, but thought there's no grounds for that. There's nothing funny or silly about Jesus. And when Jesus does glancingly appear in the script, it's just him giving the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, right. And uh, and the idea is, what if the wrong guy was taken as the Messiah? And I, I just couldn't believe how dense these guys were. Did they even bother looking at the movie? Incredible. Uh, blessed are the cheesemakers. Oh, yeah. The uh, yeah, Malcolm Muggridge was a... A religious zealot, you might say. Uh, for people who don't know, he was a very, very famous television reporter in the UK. So he was quite influential in, in his fashion. He was um, like the David Attenborough of of history, I suppose. Um, uh, and so he was on the television all the time. So he had a lot of uh, influence and power. Uh, and so to have him going against life of Brian was actually quite, uh, quite a serious thing. So they had to counter what he was saying, but yeah, he was, he was a religious nut. He really was. I, I got to share this. Oh, back in the eighties, I was going to an Episcopal church. My wife and I were very good friends with another couple that uh, also uh, went to that church and the man was uh, a, he worked at uh, a, a big dairy uh, in, in uh, Eastern North Carolina and he was the lay reader. And it so happened that it, he was, he said, he's doing the beatitudes and blessed are the peacemakers. Well, his wife turned to me and said, did he say blessed are the cheesemakers? <laughs> I said, no, nah, I think we mustn't take it literally. We must be referring to all workers in dairy products. I mean, it was <laughs> unbelievable, almost a Jungian synchronicity. <laughs> it's just amazing the power and reach of that film. You know, it's quoted time and time again in, in all sorts of um uh films and locations and whatever it's mm. it's had a big impact on how people view the gospel story uh, mm. so i and think even, it was very beneficial even on social events i see every week there's a, a twitter fight based on the scene in life of brian where the guy says i want to be called loretta and have oh, yeah. like <laughs> we're gonna put it in a box and you know, this was 40 years ago, and people are having fights on both sides and putting up the the movie, that clip. It's hilarious. It's like, oh, yeah, that what were they so even great. thinking in the late 70s? I mean, it's just very. Mm. Yeah, it was very prophetic, wasn't it? Very prophetic. Oh, man. Well, even yeah. though he can't have babies, she can have the right to have babies. I mean, there you go. That's it. But it is true. That, I mean, it was also extremely uh, historical, ac accurate, right? With the Judean people front, and I mean, <laughs> right, Bob? There was thousands of these little like uh, terrorist groups fighting the Romans. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, just it, it, it was but that was also uh, satire of the British uh, Union movement at the time, oh, okay. because we had exactly the same happening with our unions. So that was a double satire. Um, <laughs> Because they were taking the mick out of the unions, who were doing that all the time. That's why they're calling each other brother all the time. Uh, um, so that fits into the 1970s uh, British history very well as well. Wow. These guys were geniuses. Geniuses. <laughs> and there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds at you of the broken places. North American and European swallows flying at full speed to bring you freedom. If you're a non-sub, please subscribe for the full Arthurian truth. Your support keeps the lights of the Pleroma on. For all subs, let us to our second part of the interview. And Ralph and Bob are just getting their swords out of the stone. 
so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.